We don't know when exactly the women showed up. It might have been in the middle of the night after the 12 disciples fled the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe it was one of the 12 from the Garden of Gethsemane who ran to the place where the women disciples who followed Jesus were staying and and woke them up. We know that there were women who were disciples of Jesus following him at that time, who followed Jesus through his preaching and his healing and teaching ministry, because in Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Throughout the scriptures, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Mary wife of Clopas, Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, these women and many others followed Jesus and took care of his needs. In fact, they were independent financial supporters who provided for him. They were described as being ministry partners. The Greek word describing what they did is diakoneo, which means deacons in our language. They, were, they did ministry alongside Jesus and served with him. And so it makes sense that when it came time for Jesus to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when it, when it came time for Jesus to be handed over to the high priest Caiaphas to be put on trial, it makes sense that eventually someone would have gone to tell the women. So we don't know exactly when the women showed up. But at some point, shortly after it happened, they heard the news. They they heard the news that Jesus had been in the middle of the night. Jesus was on the Mount of Olives where he was staying. He was praying like he often did. But unlike what was typical, the armed Jewish temple guards came and arrested him and took him away. With Jesus was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests. Excuse me, with Judas was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And Judas, one of the twelve disciples, gave Jesus away. He kissed him. He had told the temple guards, The one I kissed is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. They arrest him. Jesus doesn't resist. And in the chaos of of this happening, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on, Peter pulls out his sword and in a display of of seeming courage, takes his sword and strikes off the ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. And Jesus, while in the process of being arrested, does a very Jesus-like thing and picks up the ear and puts it back on Malchus' head and heals him in that moment. The guards take Jesus away and the rest of the twelve run and report these things to the women. We don't know exactly when the women show up. Maybe they showed up early the next morning when the crowds were gathered outside Pilate's palace. When Pilate had Jesus stand before them and Barabbas, a convicted criminal, stand before them, and he asked the crowd, which one of these people should I set free? And perhaps the women were there when the rioting crowd around them shouted, give us Barabbas! Perhaps they were there when Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus? And perhaps they were there in that crowd 
when people began to shout, crucify him, crucify him. We don't know exactly when the women showed up. I think it's likely they were present later in the morning when Jesus was forced to parade through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross on his way to Golgotha. Maybe they watched from the crowd, maybe hidden among the people with tears on their faces. As for the first time they saw this, this person who they loved, who's now bloodied and beaten and his swollen face, the bruises, the oozing gashes on his back, and they're looking in horror as they see him strain through the streets. Maybe these women were the ones Jesus spoke to when he was carrying his cross and through the streets of Jerusalem, and it says a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. We don't know exactly when the women showed up. But we do know that when Jesus reached Golgotha, the execution hill, Golgotha meaning the place of the skull, when Jesus reached the site of where he would be crucified and die, the women were there. They were there when the soldiers grasped Jesus' beaten, bruised body. They were there when the soldiers threw him down on top of the splintered wood of the cross. They were there when the soldier took Jesus' hand and stretched it out. They were there when the spikes were driven between the bones of his hands and his feet. They were witnesses as Jesus was lifted up on the cross and the cross was set in its holder. They stood vigil as Jesus was lifted up on this cross, publicly elevated so everyone would be scared into submission of Rome and receive the warning, don't mess with Rome. These women, they stood by. They were there when the criminals talked with Jesus. They were there when passers-by yelled insults and obscenities and heaped shame. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, Mark 15 says, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourselves. They were there when the chief priests and teachers of the law passed by and not even giving any dignity to the human sacrifice before them, had the low character to scorn him in their hatred. The, teacher, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Look at this Christ, this king of Israel. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And the women stood there hearing the insults and the bullying of all the people, absorbing the pain, 
absorbing the name calling, the scorn. They stood there and they heard it all. Hours passed, noontime came. The Jewish time calls it the sixth hour. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At noon, at the brightest part of the day, the sun goes dark. Darkness, this judgment of God, the sign of judgment throughout scripture, descending over Jesus and over the earth. And still the, woman, the women stayed. They stayed as the sun got dark. They stayed through the darkness. They sat for three hours in darkness. This darkness was to fulfill the prophecy in Amos 8, verse 9. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And for three agonizing hours more. They held vigil with Jesus in the darkness of judgment, watching, waiting, just being there. And when finally, after six hours of just sitting, being present, they were there when Jesus called out in a loud voice, it is finished. And the women were there to receive his testimony. It's interesting who was not there. The crowds. All those people. All those people who had waved palm branches a few days before. All those people who had taken off their cloaks and spread them across the road as a sign of receiving royalty, saying, he saves, he saves, praise the Lord, he saves, our Savior is here. Where were they now? All those people. What about that 5,000 who had eaten his loaves and his fish? Where were they? What about the other 4,000 who ate the other loaves and fish at the other miraculous sign? What about the thousands of people who had been healed from skin diseases, from lameness who could now walk, from blindness who could now see, from demonization who were now freed? Where were they? Where were the thousands of people who listened with delight to his teaching and whose lives had changed? They weren't there. People were hungry for Jesus as long as it was easy. Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss, with the appearance of a relationship. The crowds showed up for the loaves and fishes, but not for the crosses and kisses. It's like the crowds were picky eaters. They were hungry for Jesus as long as it was always dessert. They were hungry for Jesus as long as there weren't any vegetables. But when it comes to a Jesus who looks like failure, a Jesus who looks like he's dying, a Jesus who looks like he's weak and not a rescuer, 
when it makes everybody who's associated with him look weak and vulnerable and humble and even humiliated, that's not the kind of Jesus they were hungry for. And so the fact that these, these women, the fact that these women are present with an undesirable-looking Jesus, it's really quite remarkable. These women were hungry for Jesus, even a Jesus on a cross. This was a very confusing time for everybody. It happened so fast. Nobody had time to process it. Nobody had real time to think through, oh, well, you know, the prophets say this is going to happen. And nobody was thinking, well, this is to fulfill prophecy, and I bet Jesus is going to figure this out somehow. Nobody's thinking about that. This is happening very fast, very confusing. Jesus had said everything to make them believe he was powerful, and here he was obviously not powerful. Jesus had, had said he was the son of God, and if that's true, which they had believed, they had professed that and confessed that, how could this be? Jesus had seemed like such a winner, and here he is not. And there's, there's nothing about the horrific torture. There's nothing about this scorned public execution of Jesus that made any kind of sense to them at all. It was very confusing. And sometimes life is very confusing, isn't it? I'm not talking about confusing like trying to figure out what to have for lunch, which I know is confusing for some of you more than others, <laughs> or what to wear, or, or the small things. And, and I'm not even talking about the confusing things like trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life or what job to take. I'm talking about the kind of confusing that messes you up. The, the kind of confusing that makes you wonder if everything you thought was true was really not. The kind of confusing that shakes you to your core, that you kind of just can't get over. The kind of confusing that drives you to desperation, that, that makes you ask big questions. It, that disorienting kind of confusing that really shakes you up. This is where the women are. Everything they thought was true seemed not to be. These women had a cross to carry too. They had this burden, this confusion. And a lot of us have crosses here. Crosses we're carrying, burdens we're carrying, suffering, struggles, a difficulty that just shakes you up. Something confusing that no matter how hard you try, you can't figure out your theology. It just doesn't seem like God is in this. A cross is, is a heavy source of pain. And I think like the women, we have to be the kind of Christians who know how to be Christians in times of difficulty. We do pretty well at knowing how to give thanks to God when things are going great. We do pretty well at knowing how to, how to trust God when we see him working. But what about when we don't? Part of maturity, and, and that's where we are constantly trying to grow as a church, is we're trying to get beyond the initial baby steps of Christianity to deeper maturity. Part of Christian maturity is recognizing that our belief in Jesus and our Christian faith gives us a place for confusion, gives us a place for lamentation, a place for struggle and wrestling. The faith that we have in Jesus is a faith that meets us in our darkest moments of carrying crosses. 
We have a real rescue plan in Jesus. We have a real salvation that rescues us from the darkness and confusion and the false truth of this world. So how do we be faithful in confusing times? And this message today is especially for those of you who are in confusing times and for those of you who aren't yet, but you're going to be soon. How to be faithful in confusing times. Number one, there's this challenge to be a faithful follower, not a fair-weather fan. These disciples, uh, the, these followers, excuse me, these fans who got the bread and the fish, these fans who heard, saw Jesus perform miracles, oh, he's so cool, look at this. Th- these were fans who liked the idea of Jesus and liked the great things that he did. They genuinely did. But when it came down to it, they didn't have the, the ability to follow them through faithfully. The crowds were fickle. The women were faithful. The women followed him in the good and in the bad. The women followed him when they got what they wanted and when they didn't. Do we still follow Jesus when he doesn't give us what we want? Do we still follow Jesus when he doesn't give us the good and godly things that we want? The women followed him when things made sense and when they didn't make sense. Will you follow him even when things just are so confusing? Mature followers of Jesus learn to follow faithfully through the ups and through the downs. Be a faithful follower, not a fair-weather fan. Number two, the second way to be faithful in a confusing time is just get as close to Jesus as you can. The women keep following him around. (laughs) They just want to be there. They can't change anything. They don't have the political power to negotiate in the courts and keep Jesus off the cross. They don't have the ability to take him down off that tree and carry him away. They don't have the ability to do anything except for be there. When life is a disaster, when everything is going wrong, some of us have been there. When you do not have hope, the hope you had isn't coming through. When you don't know what to do, Just get as close as you can. Follow him to the roadside. Follow him to Golgotha. Follow him to the foot of the cross. Keep on going after him and just do what you can to get close. When you're in a time of confusion and you have a cross to carry that is difficult, just get as close as you can. The women couldn't do anything. (laughs) They were here for hours. They, they were here all day. They were just with him. They just wanted to be close. So they watched. And they sat. They waited. They cried. I'm sure they prayed. I'm sure they prayed, God, end it soon. They just got close. Because for them, it was better to be in the presence of Jesus than not. 
Church, you need to know that Jesus is there for you in suffering. Jesus is there for you in times of confusion. And he's not asking you to fix things that aren't yours to fix. He's not asking you to have the right words. He's not asking you to do the right thing. He says, come to me. He says, come to me. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Just come and be in his presence. Did being in their presence fix everything? No. But was it the exact right place to be? Yes. Just be in his presence. Point number three is learn to wait. Waiting is not productive, but it's not wasted time. They weren't getting anything done. They weren't fixing the problem. It was excruciating. They must have longed for Jesus to just die. They must have longed for his misery to end. They must have been hungry for the whole thing to just all be over. But the only thing they can do is sit in the agony and wait. I don't know how to explain how the waiting of that time was good. But I do know that something was happening in these incredible hours in which the Son of God had the sin of the world coming on him and he bore in his body the sin and his body became the atonement, the sacrifice that would make us right with God. I don't understand how that all worked. I just know that somewhere in the course of the suffering and these hours of labored breathing and pain and agony that God was working out our rescue. And I can't tell you, as you wait in agony in your confusing situation, as you suffer, as you wait, I can't explain to you how God is going to work that out. That's where the faith part comes in. That's where the waiting part comes in. It doesn't feel productive. It feels like a waste of time, but it is not wasted time because there is goodness that God will develop. There are some things that God can only do as we sit and wait. There are some things that can only be accomplished as we quit doing them ourselves and let God do what he needs to do. There has to be room in our Christian lives for suffering. We have to have space in the way that we live for Jesus to wait. To say, I don't have all the answers. I can't do it myself. I'm waiting in the presence of the Lord. The fourth point that we learned from the women is be willing to stand apart from the crowd. They weren't doing what everybody else was doing. When the passers-by shout and spit expletives, maybe the women were sprayed by the saliva of those spitting at Jesus. When the offensive words were being yelled their ears were assaulted as well. They were willing to put themselves in that position just to be close to Jesus. They were willing to enter into a danger zone where they were not safe for the sake of Jesus. They were willing to stand apart from the crowd because Jesus is always going to tell you to stand apart from the crowd. 
in the membership class this past Wednesday, we were talking about how the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. That means that the church, the people of the church Christians, are called out from the world. We are called out to be separate, called out to be separate from the world so that we live distinctively different. When people should know there's something different about us because we live differently. We're called out of the regular way of doing things. These women were most certainly not doing things the ordinary way by being present. I just find it so interesting. They showed up for death. Have you ever had the privilege of sitting with somebody who's transitioning from this life to the next? If you've ever sat with somebody who's in the process of dying, it's a, it's a sacred, holy time. It, it's, it's, a very, it's a very sacred time where you're watching a body change from one space to the next. The women showed up to watch Jesus die, to bear witness to his death, to give dignity to his passing. And so they sat at the cross all day, bearing witness, keeping company, tarrying with Jesus. Tarry is an old-fashioned word that means to wait in expectation. In the, in the King James Version of the Bible, when Jesus is talking with his disciples in Gethsemane, he goes to them after they keep falling asleep. He keeps saying, I want you to pray with me, and they keep falling asleep. And finally, he says in exasperation, could you not tarry with me one hour? And they're like, no, we can't. We can't. We can't wait with you like that. But we've been invited to tarry in the presence of Jesus, to be called out from the crowd, to show up in times of suffering and to simply wait in expectation with him. The women had no expectations for a miracle to happen. They did not show up at the cross where he's crucified and say, well, you know, this crucifixion is terrible, but I've got hope Jesus is going to pull through. Jesus might do something still. I don't think that was happening. I think they pretty well knew that it was not going to be good at this point. They did not come with expectations. They They came prepared to sit with death. Faithful, faithful through the whole thing. There's a kind of faith, a faith that I I want for all of us, for myself, for you, a faith in Jesus that says, wherever he goes, I will go. Whatever he calls me to, I will do. Whatever cross he has for me to carry, God helping me, I will pick up that cross and I will carry it. I will do whatever it takes, come what may. Come hell or high water, literally hell, I will follow Jesus. That's what I want for us. That's what Jesus is calling you to. This is the kind of faith that holds on, the kind of faith that goes all the way through. Crosses are confusing. Crosses are confusing things. When you have a cross to carry, You don't understand it most of the time. When you have a cross to carry, it slows you down. When you have a cross to carry, it changes your whole life. When you have a cross to carry, it means something's going to die. No one knows when the women showed up, but we do know that they did. And we know that they kept showing up and kept showing up, and they came here and they came there and they came here, and everywhere you turn, the women just keep showing up. 
After Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate. He went to Pilate and he said, Jesus is on the cross, he's died. May I have his body to go bury it? Now, in, when there was crucifixion, normal burial customs didn't apply. You couldn't you do all the same traditional things that normally you would do. You weren't permitted to. And in fact, only a family member was permitted to request the body that had been crucified. That was a, a rule from Rome. And even then, it was not always guaranteed that the family would be given a body. Often Rome would in, in, insist on keeping the bodies on display for two or three days or so as a sign to everybody, fear Rome, and they would let the wild animals come and eat at the deceased bodies. It's, it's just this horrible statement of Rome has power and you don't. But in this case, uh, Pilate gives permission for Joseph of Arimathea to take it. One of the other burial customs they were not permitted to do is you weren't allowed to mourn publicly for a person who'd been crucified. They wanted you to have shame about the crucifixion, so you couldn't have public mourning. So when Joseph uh, takes the body, he has it taken off the cross, he transports it, he wraps it in cloth, and he places Jesus in the tomb. And guess who shows up? The women. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Learn from this. Again, they're not doing anything. They're just coming close to Jesus. They just want to be where he is. Since they can't publicly mourn, they silently mourn, and they watch. They once again keep vigil. They once again wait and sit and observe and just try to be in the presence of Jesus. Jewish law required them to go home for the Sabbath, so they did, and they anxiously rested on that Sabbath time. But very early the next morning at dawn, on that next first day of the week, as soon as they were possibly allowed to be there, guess who shows up back at the tomb? The women! When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Let's just say, church, that they were at the right place at the right time. Their faithfulness to show up as faithful followers and not just finicky fans it brought them the most tremendous reward, the most beautiful privilege of being able to be the ones who could go and tell people, he's alive. They just kept showing up. They kept getting as close as they could to the presence of Jesus. They just kept tarrying. They kept waiting. They were waiting through the Jewish Sabbath, but as soon as they could get back to the presence of Jesus, there they were. They kept on being willing to stand apart and do what no one else was doing. They kept on staying close, even when confused. They just kept on all the way through. Some of you today have confusing situations. Things that aren't adding up, crosses to carry that are heavy Crosses that are burdensome, crosses that are so complicated, you fear you will never be under it. And the invitation to you today 
is to be faithful all the way through. The invitation to you today is to just get as close as you can. It's not going to fix the problem necessarily. It might not change it how you want it to change, but just get as close as you can. And maybe the challenge for you today is to wait, to tarry, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my time, but yours be done. God, I will shut out the noise of life, and I will just be quiet in your presence, whether it's from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. or more. I will be with you. God, I will stand apart from the crowd, and I won't deal with my cross in the way that the world tells me to deal with my cross. I will carry it like you show me to carry my cross. I want you to know today how to carry crosses and how to carry burdens like a faithful follower of Jesus. He shows us. He leads us. He's made the way possible for us to do it. And the beautiful irony of all, as the women were doing all these things, here we have Jesus on the cross, dying, carrying the burden of sin, carrying the, uh, and, and his body, their grief at his death. He is with you, and he's calling you to come near. And Lord Jesus, as we come to you today, make us deeper, faithful followers. Give us opportunities to grow in maturity, and we pray that carefully because we realize that probably means you will test us and challenge us so that we can become stronger. And Lord Jesus, we say out of obedience, Yes, Lord, I receive that. Lord Jesus, make us like the courageous disciples who came to you and who stood in your presence. Give us faith to hold on to when things are confusing. Deepen us, develop us, purify us, make us holy. Call us out and make us separate from where we have been. May we have the privilege and the gift of testifying to your grace. In your name we pray, amen.